Um, hi guys, welcome to I'm a Rescue Podcast. I'm Steph Clark. I have a very special guest today. She's a puppet maker, a creator, a writer, an actor, a stand-up comic, a singer. Give it up for Molly Heckerling. I always <laughs> Thank you. Like I'm on stage and then expect people to clap. <laughs> I know, right? I'm holding for applause that just isn't there. <laughs> I do that in person too. And it's very awkward because the audience never, I'm just kidding. Um, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for being here, Molly. Um, I was so excited to to chat with you and uh, find out more about you. Like, um, so yeah, one thing I'm curious is like, what is what if you have a current favorite creative project you're working on right now? I've actually been really into writing um, just like prose, I guess. Well, not, is it prose or is it, I, I wrote a manuscript during uh, the pandemic. So um, I've actually been more in like book mode writing wise. Um, even though there's other projects that I am working on that are more like straight ahead, like TV movie script stuff. But, um, I think because of the pandemic and being forced into like isolation and not being able to work with other people for a long time, like it just seemed like the easiest groove to get into. Oh, awesome. So what, what is the manuscript about? Um, it's, it's, um, it's called the Berenstain Bears, but like spelt like Steen, S-T-E-I-N at the end, because this is crazy. Apparently there's like a whole bunch of people that think that we're living in an alternate reality because they remember the Berenstain Bears being spelt differently. And it's actually the Berenstain Bears. Like it's spelt kind of a funky name because it's based off the author's last name, which is like... B-E-R-E-N-S-T-A-I-N. And everyone like doesn't remember it that way. So instead of just assuming that their little kid brains read it wrong, they're convinced we're living in an alternate timeline. And that's the tell. So I, I thought that was a funny concept. So I was like, okay, what if there's this like woman, like vaguely based on me, who's like a little nutty, and like notices this thing with the title of the book and it keeps changing and she starts bouncing around all these different timelines of like quantum potentialities for how her life could have turned out or all these different people she could have been and the thing that just keeps changing the tell is the title of that stupid book oh, um but it's also like written in a really surreal way because I love like Kafka and a bunch of like weird crap. So I actually like made it very like satirical and Lynchian and weird. So like the whole narrative is just completely fucked up. Um, and I'm submitting it to lit agents now. And I was like, I'm not going to self-publish till I get at least 50 rejections. So I've submitted to 30 people so far. I've gotten like 10 very polite rejections. I'm very proud of this progress there was um, a, there was that reminds me of um I think it was the Nathan Felander I forget how to pronounce his last name but he produced an HBO show and I'm forgetting what it's called but they went to this convention where what you're talking about is how it was published was what it was originally called and they do that with advertisements too mm -hmm. I'm blinking on it's it's oh man it was a good show I'm forgetting 
what it was. I don't, I've never heard of it. That sounds really cool though. And it's funny that you mentioned that because like, uh, that's the other thing that's a big part of it too, is like advertisements because it's like, I know it sounds cliche, but it's like set in like a sort of like if we were slightly ahead in the future to the point where we had like all our shit just implanted. So like when you go on social media, you're just like literally surrounded by like shrieking holograms and advertisements. And um, yeah, I like that idea of like unbridled capitalism, sort of just like still trying to sell you stuff while you're hurtling through alternate dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. Or like um, in your brain, you, you can see your, your phone and you're just kind of, you know, sliding your fingers and getting ads in your brain or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're still getting targeted advertisements. It never ends. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. That's so um, fun. Yeah, so that was like something I finished during the pandemic. And um, now I'm like toying with a couple other writing ideas um, and like slowly dipping my toe back in stand up. Um, even though I'm not like one of those, like, woohoo, everything's back to normal people. But I was like, okay, I'm, I'm doubly vaccinated. Um, you know, they're small shows. It's all, you know. Yeah. I was watching, I have to say, like, I watch a lot of stand up and being a comic and running shows. I, I see a lot, uh, but you're, you're just so funny. Like I love just the well-rounded, mm-hmm. just your stage presence and your, dark humor and the and the jokes are so tight and smart and witty and like um I don't know if I have a question here it's just a bit um, thank you so much I really appreciate that because I was like I, I, I'm I like uh I have some friends that are like they're really serious about stand-up you know like that's their primary thing and they and they hit it really hard and um I was so nervous coming back to it being like, you know, I wasn't even hitting it as hard as everyone else. And it's been like a year and a half, like I'm going to be super rusty. And it just wound up luckily being like a really great show. So it felt really nice to like come back and have a good experience and see some people. And then the show after that was weird, but it didn't feel as bad because it's like, you know, okay, I had a good one. Now I'll have a weird one. And yay, like maybe things are back to normal-ish if we're all having our weird comedy shows again in awkward venues. Right. Or like just the dudes in the corner with their arms crossed. And you're like, fuck, why are people still going to be a dick after all? (laughs) Right. Yeah. There was this one guy in the front row and he was totally like, um, the sits with his arms folded the whole time kind of guy. Um, he had like chronic disappointed dad face was the best way I can describe it. Um, so he, I think he would probably look that way even if he was having the time of his life though. Right. Well, I got to ask you, cause I watched the 15 minute one. You, I think you just released the circus one. Yeah. yeah. And so your joke was that your, your grandma or your great grandma it was my uh my great grandma's family yeah um or was it um actually no and I might have actually fucked up my own family history the story is definitely true but I wasn't sure if it was my I told it as my great grandmother's family and I think it might have been my great grandfather's family so my grandmother's father had the family with 14 kids and three of them were triplets and they sold them to the circus. Um, because I guess that, you know, it was, it was rare back then to have triplets and, you know, 
they probably didn't think that Barnum and Bailey's was going to like kill their kids. Um, but lo and behold. <laughs> oh my God. That is so crazy. When did you, when did you, oh, you, you recently found that out or you had. Done- yeah. That was like over the past year. Cause like, you know, um, we're all just sort of sitting around and, you know, talking and, uh, and my grandma just like slowly starts to let drip these like really crazy family stories that I didn't hear growing up. Um, one of the other stories, you know, like small talk. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, did I ever tell you about my cousin, Danny? Like, Oh yeah, we don't talk about him, but I loved him so much. And Oh yeah. He got the electric chair and it's like, what the fuck you? Yeah. No, you never told me this story. (laughs) Um, but yeah, apparently like, you know, uh, the, there was the triplet thing. And then there was a cousin of hers that was sentenced to death by the state because he, uh, he knocked up a girl and he was trying to get some money. So he like tried to hijack a car and accidentally shot the driver and the driver wound up being the personal driver for Eisenhower. And like, they were, they threw the book at him and put him in the chair. Um, so I guess like, yeah, if you want to hear a bunch of crazy family stories, just give your grandma some CBD and like all the blocks will come off the vault. Yeah, for real. Do you, how, how long have you been doing stand-up? Um, I started, I think I started after my first daughter was born. So probably like five years, but like, yeah, like, um, sort of on and off. Cause I feel like I, like I'll do shows, but I don't do these like really long stents like most people. And I don't book like a bunch of shows back to back. And like, I feel like it, like the dilettante comic, you know what I mean? Where it's like kind of have one foot in and one foot out. Um, but maybe that's also like my saving grace because I don't, <laughs> the comedy scene can't absolutely decimate my self-esteem. I have other things to help decimate my self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. So not one of them has too much power. That's a smart move. <laughs> Thank um, you. It is. Cause you can, it's just can be so toxic. So it's, it's good to just kind of be removed from it. Um, do you, so, so for those that don't know Molly's um, mom is Amy Heckerling, who is a director and did Clueless, my, one of my favorites and directed Fast Times at Richmond High. So do you remember the, uh, what it was like for your mom to first watch you do stand up and did she give you, what was that like? Did she give you notes or like? Mom, um, it's so funny because she knows so many comedians and works with so many like comedians and writers, but she, I don't think she likes stand up comedy. Like she likes it okay, but it's not her favorite medium. And like she'll go to comedy shows, but I kind of feel like on a level, the whole thing's lost on her. I mean, not lost on her, but it's just like, it's kind of not her vibe. And, um, and you know, there are some people that she absolutely adores. And then the rest of it, she could take or leave. Like she adores Gilbert Gottfried and she adores Stephen Wright. And I think after that, it's just sort of like, I don't get this, um, you know, but, um, it's also weird doing anything in front of your mom. Like she admires comics because she's like, I could never in a million years stand by myself on a stage 
and do that. I don't know where you get the guts to, to do that. So I think that's, you know, um, a tip of the hat she gives to any comedian is that like, this looks so terrifying. Um, but I hate when my mom comes to my shows, like I've done well in front of my mom, but I've also done poorly in front of my mom. At the end of the day, I feel like doing comedy in front of your parents is like trying to fuck in front of your parents. It's like, you know that I do this, but I don't want to do it in front of you. Um, maybe that makes me sound psychotic, but that's how I feel about I've it. I've heard other comics say that they don't like when their parents, like my, it's funny. My mom like will go to every show. She's that sweet. <laughs> she listens. She brings all her girls, like all her like senior friends from mm-hmm. the retirement community, or she'll like make friends with people that work at like Seize Candy and tell them, oh, you have to go to my daughter's show. So it's just, it's just interesting how, yeah, some, yeah, I can see how, like, so, yeah, some family members I wouldn't want, but like, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just so, yeah, that's interesting your mom sounds nice she sounds like a really nice person who's like fun and sociable and supportive and um my mom's totally supportive but she's not that person whatsoever she's not making friends at the candy store she's not you know she'll tell people to come to my show but then that just makes me feel more pressure like my mom is like she's kind of she's got resting bitch face like you know um she's just not the person you want at the show. And she's totally cool with that too. She's like, I get it. I've got this, like, I'm not, you know, um, she's like, yeah, your mom sounds like she's fun and friendly and probably a good laugher. My mom just sits there kind of awkwardly. Um, so well, yeah, it's, it's creative. So maybe it's more just observational and it's more like just analyzing it like a comic would. Yeah, you know what, that's weird too, is that I I find it hard performing in front of people that are also performers or also creative because I even feel like, um, and some people more so than others and some people less so than others, like, and I don't think that there's any intention behind it, but I think it's naturally hard for a creative person to sit there and watch and not be a little judgmental or a little jealous or a little bit whatever and when you're on the reverse side of it it's hard not to feel a little bit like scrutinized or nervous or like you know I've had singer friends come to my shows when I was in a band and those were like my worst shows and then you're embarrassed and that's exactly you know. how I feel and I thought I was I thought for a while I was alone on it but I think a lot of comics feel that way like I have trouble doing open mics for that reason where, mm-hmm. where I just don't feel like I can perform at my best or I, yeah, I feel that, feel that judgment, but it's just, it's just comics, right? Just and, like figuring out why the joke works. It's just a different type of audience. It is. Yeah. And that's why like, you know, open mics are fun and I used to do them more, but then I also sort of realized that because it's such a different vibe and um, such a different setup that, it was hard for me to gauge what was actually working and what wasn't or what would or wouldn't work in front of a, a live audience. And so I sort of eventually started taking the George Carlin method of like, no, if this is going to bomb, it'll bomb on stage in front of a real audience and I'll know for sure. And I'll figure out why. And, um, cause you know, the open mic thing is like, you can, you can do really poorly with some jokes and tell them in front of an audience and an audience will like them because they're not as judgmental as a room full of other 
comedians. Right. And as like a mom, you have to like manage your time and just, it's just not, a, it's not as practical to be like doing open mics every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I mean, there's benefits to doing open mics, like I'm like the socialization aspect, but I also feel like, yeah, if you're not getting anything out of it in terms of cultivating material, um, it doesn't seem to like lead to bookings or anything, you know? Um, so yeah, you have to use your time wisely. Yeah. Do you have kids? No, no, we don't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, it's like, yeah. Cause I've got two kids. So it's like, I would love to, um, you know, hit up. Oh, actually, no, that's a lie. Even if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't be like, I'd love to hit up all the open mics. No, no, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah. With the mics, I'll like commit to being like, I'll be on a, just, I mean, after the pandemic, I've kind of just, I was, before it, I was doing way too many shows and not in the way where they're not all like quality or whatever, you know what I mean? Just to, to get stage time in. And then after the pandemic, pandemic, I'm like, I don't want to travel this, like in LA, it's a little different because it's so spread out than New York. It's mm-hmm. just like, yeah. you can't do three shows in a night out here. I mean if you're not regularly at clubs or whatever. So I think there's nothing wrong with like picking what you want to do. And yeah. Right. Yeah. LA is so different in terms of that. I didn't even like think of that because um, I take for granted that I live in New York and it's super easy to just do multiple shows a night, even though like I was never a person that was like that slammed with, with bookings. Like, I think I did like two shows in one night, like only a, a couple times. Um, and it was fine. I'm also really bad at booking myself. Like I know that people probably like, you're supposed to reach out to bookers, right. And be like, Hey, would you have me on? And I always feel like I'm imposing on people. I never want to bother anyone. So like, I always just wait until people ask me and that's kind of dumb because it, it's an industry that relies on self-promotion, isn't it? And especially cause there's so many aggressive dudes that I, it's like my company is called funny girl events. And I hear from guys more than anybody and that's Mm -hmm. just kind of push those messages aside to reach out to women right right it's so funny a lot of a lot of female comics do think that same way of like i'm i don't see it as a bother i i think it's i think it's a good thing to reach out right yeah exactly i really admire my friends who are like you know they're 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 not like you know straight white male comics and they are really good at like being proactive about their career so I usually look to to them like you know people like Jack Stoloso and Gina Bloom and you know Ellery Smith and Ginny Hogan they seem to like be out Dana Donnelly like you know people who are out like creating a lot of their own opportunities and are really good at like getting their face out there um I just saw Gina Natalie Perlin's great too oh sorry Oh, no, I was saying Natalie Perlin is great, too. Um, but, like, yeah, I should try to, like, model myself more after them. I also wonder if it is, like, a, con- a weird conditioning thing where it's, like, you know how they say that, you know, girls are less likely to raise their hand in class because we're conditioned to second-guess ourselves more. I wonder if there's a hesitancy in, in reaching out to bookers or being proactive about opportunities professionally. I think so. It's just socially conditioned to be that way, and you have to go out of your way to get break out from that you know right yeah if everyone's gonna hate me and be bothered by me I don't want it to be because of my gender (laughs) um but yeah um I I think that like 
What were you saying? Sorry. Oh, it's okay. I was just gonna, you can go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was like, like you said, um, you know, after the pandemic, I feel like it's totally natural for people to be more selective about how they spend their time and who they're willing to spend it with. And, you know, what, what you deem is like valuable. And, um, you know, I know people are like really excited to be getting their shows back on again, but I also think that the last thing anyone should do to themselves right now is put pressure on themselves to feel any way that they don't feel or do anything that they don't feel comfortable doing. Or, um, I think that whatever anyone is feeling or doing right now is a totally natural and appropriate response to national trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's often like my husband's a comic too. And that's often like what we discuss is just, yeah, just of life being short and what you thought mattered before doesn't really matter at all. And they're in, you know, when it comes to cre- what you want to be doing creatively, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, if it's, if it's a creative endeavor and you're not worried about like, you know, whether or not if it's not for money and that pressure is off and it's a creative thing, then the only thing that should matter is whether or not you're feeling it at that moment. Um, it's like all the shit that I felt so bad and stupid about before the pandemic was just like, so pointless. Um, and now it's like, you know, whenever people are like, yay, let's get back to normal. And it's like, I don't kind of want to get back to what normal was before. Like, I don't want to go back to fucking, you know, everything and everyone being terrifying. But um, I also think that like, we should learn, be learning a lot from this and about ourselves and I don't know, not carrying all the previous bullshit with us. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. I like, I took the time to watch so many different documentaries and just kind of, you know, really question a lot of things. So I think not everyone has done that, but I don't know. It's a personal choice you know yeah I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be like a downer or preachy or whatever I'm just it's sort of like a life-affirming thing where it's like yeah you know come out of this and and do you unabashedly don't do anything you don't want to do don't suck any dick you don't want to suck don't fucking take any shit from anybody um I don't know but yeah, there was actually, there was a, speaking of documentaries, there was a really great documentary that Jonah Ray recommended to me called The Century of the Self. And the whole thing is on YouTube. It's like four hour length episodes and it's fucking wild. If anyone's looking for a depressing anti-capitalist documentary to check out about how advertising and, and Edward Bernays just totally fucked American psychology um that's a good one and then while they're on youtube they can check out your show your web series which we'll get into ratso um, oh yeah <laughs> so i watched a few and um and i just think it's part of it is so amazing because you went into it like never making a puppet before right? yeah um i had the idea for it first because i just wanted to do something sort of like retro sitcom-y with um with rats and at first I like wasn't sure whether or not to like try to do animation or stop motion and then I thought like puppets would be easier because once you make them then you can just you know 
reuse them all the time. And then I realized that no shit, that's a lot harder because anything that you want or need or envision for the episode, you have to build and you have to build this like wacky three quarter scale of everything for the puppets. And, um, but it wound up being a lot of fun. And I hooked up with a lot of really cool people doing it. Um, you know, Kevin Sims, who's one of the actors in the show, he was a puppeteer from the Lion King. Um, my friend Nick Khan, who was in Avenue Q, hooked me up with a lot of cool Avenue Q people. Um, and it was just like a really great experience. It was something I'd been working on for a really long time. And then I was like, fuck it, we're just going to do this one like bullshit season of it. We'll do it my way. Um, you know, because we had tried different incarnations with different people before and I didn't like the way it turned out. Um, and also it was like kind of topical because I was working Donald Trump in there as sort of like a quasi character. Mm -hmm. Um, he was like a, he was a, a mouse named Corny Dump and he was like running for, you know, he was trying to erect a fence in the dump to, you know, keep everyone separated. And, um, so we had to like release it when we did before, you know, the election and then the, you know, the pandemic hit and it was sort of a clusterfuck because I was like, I wanted to get it out as soon as we could. It, while it was still topical. Right. right. Um, but I also acknowledged like, wow, this is the worst time to be promoting anything. Because um, you released it, what, like a week before, like Mar March, early March? We, yeah, we were releasing it. I released the first one in like February. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, and we were going to do like a weekly thing instead of just dumping them all at once. And um, then the pandemic hit. And um, I was torn about it because I was like, nobody like wants to hear about this shit. Like every like the world's too depressing, and no one gives a fuck about this. And and my boyfriend and some of my friends were like, no, but you know, sometimes people also need like a distraction from shit too. And you know, you may as well like we we did it, we filmed it, like um, and we were already submitting to festivals and stuff, and it did like get me other opportunities to work with some really cool people. Cause um, this guy, Dave Schilling, who's a friend of mine now, he's a TV writer and he saw the, um, the episodes online and he really liked them. And he asked me to come in and, you know, rewrite the script for him and Jonah Ray. So working with him has been really cool. Like he's a friend now we've like want to work on stuff together. And um, Todd Masters, who is a friend of my mom and um, he's like a special effects guru. Like he's the guy who's worked on everything. He's worked on Legion. He's worked on Lucas talking. He's worked on like every horror movie you can think of. Um, he really loved the puppets. So now he wants to do puppet stuff together with me. So like, even if the release of Ratso didn't like go as I wanted, sadly, cause yeah, everyone was dying and I felt awful. And, you know, it didn't do gangbusters online. Like it did lead to some other really cool connections, which I think is ultimately what you want out of anything. Right. Yeah, I think so. And it's so, it, it's so well done and it looks great. And, this, and the voices and the acting and the writing is all, all great. I think that the heart, I think, cause like we did a, a, we shot our own pilot a few years ago and, 
and I always had this expectation, like it was going to, we were going to sell it and something was going to happen. And then after, you know, years later, I realized, no, that part of it was like, just doing it felt great. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? exactly. Cause it's like, you know, I don't know. I feel like a lot of us who are like creative and especially in our generation where it's sort of like all the social safety nets are gone. We're looking at, oh, you're never going to own a house. You're never going to have this. You're never going to have that. Like we're all sort of in this weird space where we're like waiting for something to happen, like something external, like I'm going to do this and it's going to blow up. And then that's going to be the thing that's going to have it all fall into place and make sense. And it never like it never goes that way. It seems like um, maybe it does for like a like a small handful of people. But for most people, it seems like you do a bunch of really small shit and it doesn't blow up the way you want it to. But you make a lot of really cool friends and you build a career of longevity. And then eventually people notice you because yeah, you've just yeah. been there so long. Right. Right. Because it's a marathon, you know, not a sprint. Um, yeah. What what inspired you to kind of create something independent like rap so do you think it was growing up in the in industry like do you think seeing your mom as a creative and seeing kind of how how kind of sometimes shitty that the entertainment industry can be made you kind of want to do something independent um I wish I could say anything so noble no we actually we tried to go the traditional route we just got <laughs> rejected by you know it's like I I went to Red Hour my mom's friend Stuart Kornfeld was working there at the time it was when I first had a script for Ratso. I didn't have anything shot none of the puppets were built it was a five-page script he was like that's way too long he showed me a one-minute thing on the internet he was like do you see how long that felt like so I was like, okay, I got to go back to the drawing board with this. And then a few years later, we made a really short, like five minute thing after I did have all the sets and puppets built. Cause that was a huge learning curve too, was just like learning how to build the puppets and doing the Henson stitch and having my friend Janine, who like her father was a contractor. So she was really great at like building set stuff. So she made their little house and, um, you know, so we got that up and running. We posted it. I showed it around to like, I didn't really show that one to many people. That one just exists and is weird and it stands on its own. Um, and then years later, I revisited the idea again because it, I was just sort of letting it shrivel on the vine a little bit. And I had an agent at that point because I wrote a screenplay that, um, you know, that got me signed. And um and they were like, oh, Donald Glover's production company is looking for something. And I was like, cool, like, you know, this is perfect. And I got some, I got these guys together. Um, they had a production company of their own. They wanted to work with me on it. Um, they types of guys that refer to themselves as good male feminists and then steamroll everything that fucking comes out of your mouth. So like, I, I deferred to them at the time because, um, you know, I didn't have any directing experience or, or producing experience. And, you know, we were all doing it together. And I didn't like the way it turned out because um, it was just creative differences. And I, um, I was like, I, I think I just like was too doormatty at the time. You know, do you ever have those things where you look back on where you're just like, why did I let myself get pushed around? 
you know, um, it's, it's so, it's so, it's so frustrating to say, because it's like, yeah, it was my idea and it was my thing. And I was paying their production company to help. And one of the dudes I'm still friends with and, and the other dude was just like very kind of pushy, like a nice enough guy. I don't think he has the self-awareness to know that he's like this pushy. Um, but like, it didn't turn out funny. The pilot like that we shot for the thing, it wasn't, it just wasn't funny enough. Um, and I don't think it landed for, for them. So Donald Glover's people didn't, you know, they said like, oh, this is bananas, but they didn't want it. Um, and then a few more years went by and I was working on Madam Secretary as um, a stand-in for like a year. Cool, okay. And then when the season wrapped, for some reason, I was like, I'm going to take this time to go back and do Ratso and I'm going to give it one last go just as like my swan song of fuck it with these puppets because they've just been sitting in my room for too goddamn long and you know we'll do it my way and we'll make it fucked up and then we'll put it to bed unless anyone wants it but no one wants it but a few randos seem to like it you know who wound up loving it the unexpected demographic was the furries um we got a few furries furry fans on twitter um, who just really loved the puppet orgies with the animals. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's funny to watch. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely not for everyone. So I don't fault anybody who watches it and is simply like, I don't know, this isn't funny. Because, you know, it's its its own weird thing. It's like the puppets can get away with fucking like that. It's funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you, because we're the same age, like we're born in 85 because I looked it up, but do you, mm -hmm. did you ever watch Under the Umbrella Tree? Did you, no, what is that? It was, it was a Canadian puppet show. It wasn't like about sex or anything. I wasn't watching it. Right, okay. <laughs> but it, it was just, I, I just loved these puppets when I was a kid. And I remember they uh, watching it and they changed the time when they would air it. So I would miss it because I was in preschool and I would cry. But it was just, yeah, it was just like a cool, like the lead was a female and it was, she, she had these puppets under her umbrella tree and it was just a cute, cute uh, Canadian show that was, I think on Nickelodeon or Disney. I don't remember which one. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I was obsessed with Wienerville. Um, do you remember Wienerville? I don't know if I, it sounds familiar. Okay. So it's like this guy, Mark Wiener, who's just like this kind of schlubby guy um had these like puppet sets that were sort of like dioramas with little puppet bodies and a hole cut out so that he could put his head in so it was like his head with these little puppet bodies and these weird little sets and it was called wienerville and it was just insane it was sort of like mr rogers on crack um so i really enjoyed that I, I got to give it up for Mark Wiener. No one talks, no one sings his praises anymore. Up for him. Yeah. <laughs> I watched one about Sesame Street not too long ago. And yeah, all of the work that goes into it. I just didn't really, I didn't realize. I mean, of course, it looks like it's complicated, but it really. Yeah, is. there was a great documentary called I Am Big Bird about Carol Spinney, who, um, he died recently. He was the guy who did Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, like, from the beginning and they talk about the inside of the big bird suit and it's so involved from like drawstrings 
to like operate both arms when you need one arm to be doing the mouth and how there's like a little television monitor inside the suit so he could see like what's going on around him. It's really crazy. Like how involved some of it gets when you're, when you're like master puppet person. Right. Right. Would you ever bring the puppets as part of stand your stand up? No, that would be too embarrassing. <laughs> I've seen other comics do it. And it's not that I, it's not that I don't like it in general. Um, even I'm not like a Jeff Dunham fan, but I have like, uh, Marco Valli, who I did a show with recently, he's got his puppet Carlitos. Carlitos is like a sex worker puppet who's like a hundred thousand followers on Instagram. <laughs> so, like, I like it when he does his show with with Carlitos. But um, I feel like if I tried to do it, I would just be way too self conscious. I don't like improv. I'm, you know, and also like. I build the puppets, but I'm also not like the world's greatest puppeteer. Like I, I almost made the characters thinking that they would be possessed by other performers, um, not just me um, and my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I, I keep the puppet world and the stand-up world separate just for myself, for my own sanity. <laughs> Just looking at my notes. Um, no worries. Um, did you, oh yeah, I remember. Did you, did you like growing up on set and like watching your mom? Did that inspire you to want to, to act and sing? I think growing up around creative people made me feel inspired because they were all so talented, but also it's inspiring to see people who are able to make a living doing what they love. As I've gotten older, I realized just like, you know, how rare it is to be someone like my mom. I mean, I, I knew it then, I knew it growing, growing up, but, um, but especially now, um, you know, she's, she's a beast. She's, you know, she's an inspiration to so many people. And I loved growing up on sets because like, it was like being in a fantasy world where you get to be around a bunch of people who are all really excited because they're making something that's bigger than, you know, bigger than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? So that was always nice. Um, and she always like, got, you know, it was always a happy vibe too, because my mom's not an asshole. So like the crew members always really love her. The cast members always really love her. Like, it was just always like a nice time. It was like being at summer camp with a bunch of cool people. Um, so you must've been yeah. like, when, when Clueless came out, were you on set? You must've been like eight, right? I was like, yeah, I was nine years old. I think when they were shooting. And I loved hanging out around that set. Alicia was really cool. Breck and Meyer was, you know, awesome and hilarious. Paul Rudd's really cool. Like they were all really amazing people. Brittany Murphy was the sweetest person in the universe. So um, so yeah, it was a lot of good times. I was very lucky growing up. Yeah. Do you, um, okay. I was going to say, um, so like, yeah, so for like Clueless, that was a big inspiration to me. Like, um, I remember making my dad take me to see it in the theater like three times. And like, Aww. he would laugh at the line of like, oh, is it in the valley or whatever that line is? And like, 
uh, he, he passed away when I was young, when I was 10. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. But, um, clueless and like just the strong female characters had always is still a big inspiration for me as a as a comic and writer it what is like your movie that or a couple movies that you go to for inspiration oh wow um just like in general or mom's movies Uh, um either i um movies I go to for inspiration I okay so I love anything by Neil Simon I really love his writing I think he's brilliant um a movie that always makes me kind of feel good even though I know it's cheesy is um the goodbye girl uh with Marsha Mason and Richard Dreyfuss because she's like a 33 year old dancer with the kid and her you know himbo boyfriend just walked out on her and um, sublets their apartment to Richard Dreyfus as like a final fuck you to Marsha Mason, who's like, where am I supposed to go with my kid? So Richard Dreyfus like lets her stay there and they fall in love. But it's a funny movie because like they're both performers struggling to make money living in New York. And it's so real to me. Like he's in an off-Broadway production of, um, uh, what is it? Um, Richard the Third, and um, it's like a terrible off-Broadway version that's ridiculous. And she's like trying to dance, and they both have these shitty jobs. And I like it because it's just sort of like a funny feel-good movie where like artists are always working their shitty gig jobs to try to pay rent in New York. I find that very relatable. Um, and the other movie that um, that I like watching repeatedly is world's greatest dad by bobcat goldthwaite um i don't know if you've ever seen it it's robin williams uh it's a movie that was actually quoted a lot after robin williams died because it has this great line in it that you know um, it's probably written by bobcat goldthwaite but everyone's sharing the picture of robin williams with the quote and um it was I used to think the worst thing in life was being all alone, but it isn't. The worst thing is being surrounded by people who make you feel all alone. And um, it's a really funny movie. It's a black comedy. Robin Williams is a high school poetry teacher who just gets no respect. He has a teenage son who's a chronic masturbator who accidentally kills himself doing autoerotic asphyxiation. Oh, yeah. I've seen this movie. I think, yeah. I yeah, yeah. So he like tries to cover it up by writing a fake suicide note for his son that's very heartfelt and poetic and it actually gets circulated around the school and the kid gets the sort of post-mortem, you know, street cred for being this like beautiful tortured soul, which he wasn't. And um, it's sort of that, that struggle of like, you know, is it more important for everyone to think that you're a good person when you're really not? Or is it more important to like be a good person and have everyone think you're an asshole? So um, for social media, like probably now more than ever. Yeah, right. So at the end of the movie, Robin Williams is like, you know, oh, he he killed he he confesses. He's like he's at the big school assembly. He's like Kyle died masturbating, and I wrote his suicide note, and you know, bye. And everyone's looking at him like he's a fucking monster. 
And then he runs through the school and tears off all his clothes and goes um, skinny dipping in the in the pool, which I think is also like so liberating to watch old pudgy Robin Williams running in slow motion, just happily tearing off all his clothes to go skinny dipping with his socks on. Like it's very liberating to see. <laughs> I'll have to rewatch that one. Sorry, <laughs> I went off on a tangent. Yeah, world's greatest dad. It's really it's a. Uh, you know, it's not easy to watch the kid in the beginning because he's such a pervy asshole and then he kills himself like that part's sad. Also, the music is great. Like Bobcat Goldthwait really was able to use all the songs from all the bands that he loves. And I, I know that was like really important to him because he mentioned it in, in the soundtrack jacket for the movie that like they would play the songs on set and it was just like a huge part of the movie's vibe. So like music is also like my mom gets so frustrated about shit like that now with you know how expensive it is to license things and get the rights to anything because you know she loves music so much and knows that that could just like make or break a joke make or break a scene um so yeah world's greatest dad has a lot of great music in it too because the um no doubt right was supposed to be the opening for clueless yeah i think so and they they used the song a little bit in the movie right. but not a lot um and then the muffs actually wound up being the ones who did that cover of kids in america um i love the muffs yeah, and um that is so good I, yeah I, I, I like when i had only a few i had only a few a few cds back then when i was a kid and it was um it was definitely uh, uh a lot set the clueless mm-hmm. soundtrack and maybe yeah julio was like that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> That's a good collection. And TLC. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Very 90s collection. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I used to love Meredith Brooks, which was just like such a one hit wonder for that decade. Um, she sang that song, Bitch. Oh, I'm oh. a bitch. I'm- <laughs> yeah. I remember like being a kid dancing with my friends, singing, like playing that song. Yeah, because at the time when we were little, we were like, oh, she said bitch. (laughs) They had to bleep it on the radio. It was so, we thought that was so risque back then. I was watching your whole reel, like where it's combined with stand-up and acting and like your band and um, from, from vamps right oh yeah yeah i threw that reel up for imdb because i i figured if i was gonna try to get little acting gigs that it helps to have and it's so weird because it's like i haven't done anything i've like day played on one thing and here's me and my stupid band in my mom's movie and like you know when you feel like you're trying to um make something out of nothing because you have to make it look like you're doing shit or have done shit it's like when you read people's bios and it's clear that they wrote their own bios I feel like that's how my reel is where it's like how do I take a whole bunch of nothing and make it look like something so people will hire me Um, well-rounded though it doesn't it it doesn't look like that to me you might feel that way but it looks great thank you I appreciate that um yeah I think the the thing that I'm most proud of is like being a day player on Gossip Girl and giving like being the goth who's smoking a joint um <laughs> next to Leighton Meester I felt very typecast but it was good that was real um and uh 
And I didn't realize that we went to high school together because I saw her on the set that day and she was like, we went to high school together and you were always so cool and your boyfriend seemed scary, but you were nice. Um, <laughs> I was dating a communist. They, they always seem scary. Yeah. Standoffish. <laughs> yeah, you know, they smoke a lot and they're mad. Um, what are you going to do? But I'm, I'm glad the real looks good. Yeah, it looks dope. Um, it's funny you said the Richard. I never have seen the Richard Dreyfus movie, but our um, our friend Matthew, who directs our web series, The Clarks, he his he well his mom had a relationship with Richard Dreyfus, like a short lived thing, and oh, yeah. and he looks just like him, so he thinks that's his dad. That's funny. So like I and I know that you uh, googling your 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 um, personal stuff that like later on you found out your dad was Harold Ramis. Yeah. So I feel like this happen this happens a lot where I mean or a few like it, it it's more common than people think. Right. Yeah. You know it's funny because like the guy who I thought was my dad for my whole life was um, Neil Israel and I still consider him my dad and. Um, you know, that the whole Harold Ramis thing was really tough for us to go through, but it was also like, it was weird because his whole family, like his mom's a redhead, my cousin on Neil's side is a redhead. So it's like, it, it seemed natural that it's like, they totally thought I was one of them because it's like, oh, look, she has Nana's red hair. Oh my God, you look just like Nana. And for a while, like the rest of the family didn't know, my Nana never knew. So it was always awkward to be like, oh, you look just like me when I was young and being like, oh, we're not related. Um, but it is weird to sometimes be like, oh, wow, I look just like fucking Harold Ramis with tits. It's really, if he had red hair and that's his face and oh my God, I hope some guys are attracted to Lady Harold Ramis. Um, <laughs> And it's also weird when you look at other celebrity kids, like, do you ever look at like Ronan Farrow and you're just like, there's no way you're Woody's kid. I didn't know you that. Look, I didn't know like, that. He I looked just like Frank Sinatra. Not until I watched the documentary. I'm like, how did I not know this? Like, yeah. Yeah. Does he look like Woody Allen to you? Oh, he's such a pretty man. He doesn't look. Like yeah. <laughs> like, and that's why my mom's always like, I think my mom was like, he's Frank Sinatra's kid. I'll bet he's Frank Sinatra's kid. Cause Mia was fucking Frank Sinatra when she was with him. And you know, he doesn't look like Woody Allen. He's got, you know, he's got Frank Sinatra's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> how, how old were you when you, when all this came about? Um, I was 15. It was, it was a really, um, it was a really fucked up way that my dad found out that I wasn't his kid um, because he didn't find out from my mom. He found out from a ex-wife of his who wound up be being a fucking psychopath. Oh, um, and uh, she was the one who found out from a, you know, third hand piece of gossip. It's such a weird story. It's such a weird story. Um, a friend of my dad's who uh, was dating my mom after they split up, also dated his other ex-wife after they split up. So I guess my mom told him and he told the crazy one. And then the crazy one told my dad thinking that, you know, I don't know, she'd use it as leverage somehow or whatever. And, uh, and then he was really depressed. And then he told me when I was like 15, um, that I wasn't his kid. 
And then look who's talking made a lot more sense when I went back and rewatched it because it's like, <laughs> oh shit, George Siegel is playing Harold Ramis. <laughs> and he's telling this woman that he's in love with someone else and he's not gonna, because that's what happened with Harold. Harold was married. He was cheating on his wife with my mom. And then he dumped them both and married his secretary. It's been, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's crazy that you look back and you're like, oh, she was telling yeah. me to work. So I guess like when George Siegel in the movie tells Kirstie Alley that he's going through a selfish phase. And I think that that's actually something that Harold said to my mom and he was really pissed off that she put it in the movie and he would, he referred to look who's talking as that awful movie. Oh, shit. <laughs> but I love Harold. Like Harold was a great guy and mom loved him too. It was just like a fucked up situation, but it's also like, Oh, Hollywood in the 80s. You mean to tell me that everyone's coked up and cheating on their spouses? What a shock. Right, right. But to have that unfold as a teenager, I can't imagine just how that must have been very hard. Yeah, it was it was hard. It was weird. I definitely went through my like, you know, Lolita phase for a while, just being like, you know, you're always looking to like recreate your fucked up like the thing that you're missing in childhood you look for in adult relationships right. and that's dumb too oh, yeah. um but uh um you know yeah it was weird it was weird in high school knowing that um that was you know weird stuff in high school with max landis and huh we had times there was like you know high school it was like a yeah it was a crazy teenage thing growing up in la and that whole weird environment and all those crazy people oh I um, grew up in LA I thought you've always just been in New York oh no yeah I moved to New York when I was 18 okay um so I had a fair amount of being in LA and being like this place is awesome this place is awful yeah. <laughs> oh my god um you know I don't I, I feel like everyone gets a little, you can't I don't think you can grow up in LA or live in LA for more than 10 years to not develop narcissistic personality disorder even if you don't want to right. um or at least come in close contact with numerous people who have it um so uh New York was cool <laughs> Um, I always like would say that I want to move back to LA because I always felt like maybe it would be easier to get steady work or break into the writing industry if I were out there and at the same time I don't I'm not sure if that's true or if you do it you do it like us and live out in the suburbs where you have your space and it's quiet I mean I like it it's just quiet yeah. and you live close enough to to be there for shows or whenever you you know auditions or whatever that's right yeah that seems like the best that seems like the best way to go where you're just like you know crazy adjacent but like able to get to the shows yeah 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 for sure it's like far enough away um what else? Oh, like I, oh I was gonna switch gears and just like ask you like because from from just seeing um from seeing how you do stand up and writing and everything and having a family and two kids like it seems like you balance everything so well and um what what is advice what is your advice to those that are looking for more, more balance as a creative type um i'm extraordinarily lucky that i have a partner who is 
super supportive and hands-on with the kids. Um, otherwise it would be impossible. Like I know that, you know, the thing that society loves to tell women is you can have it all, but what they really mean is you can do it all. And even that's not fucking true. Um, so it really, you know, it helps that I have a partner who's willing to watch the girls when I go do shows, who's willing to like wake up with the baby when I stay up too late writing or, you know, who supports me in doing anything creative instead of seeing it as a threat or, you know, just, you know, pissing on my, you know, dreams outside of, you know, what their interests are. You know what I mean? Um, I know that sounds like the bare minimum, but surprisingly it's, not like it's something you can't take for granted when you have kids it's like child care is fucking expensive if I have to pay a babysitter like 20 bucks an hour so I can go do a show that's not going to pay me anything when I'm there all night like it's kind of an impossible system so yeah like I'm, I'm lucky that my family is supportive I'm lucky I have rich parents like or rich mom who you know, helps us out. Like otherwise, you know, it would be impossible. And I know it's like frustrating because like everyone jokes about how, oh, if you go break into comedy, you have to have like, it helps to have rich parents. And it's like, that shit's real. Um, I wish I was rich enough to be everyone's rich parent. I'm like, I'm just, I gave so much this year to like GoFundMes and everything. Like I just, ugh, I, I, I I wish I was like Elon Musk rich so I could just pay off everyone's medical bills no. and get everyone babysitters so they could go do what they want to do. But if you were um, you would fly to Mars and tell everyone to like fuck off. I wouldn't fly to Mars. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't fly to Mars. I would buy literally every house and then give the houses away to people who need them. Yeah. What a pipe dream. Right. <laughs> But your, your work, yeah, like, like one thing I was going to say earlier on, but it's like your work is, um, you're, you're fighting for like the working class, you know what I mean? (laughs) You are like with the wrath. So, and like, um, the, like the political satire stuff, um, where does that come from as growing up with someone that had was fortunate enough to have a good life? Um, my mom was working class like she's and she even herself like because I know a lot of people in her position are sort of like you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you your generation just sucks because you don't work hard enough and she's not that person she's like you know you couldn't do what I did anymore you can't work your way through college I you know she was able to like pay off her student loans right when the interest rates were low enough to still be able to do that when tuition was cheap enough that you could and she was a barmaid like all the Mina Suvari stuff in Loser was true like she worked in the strip club like as the barmaid and you know would have to come home late at night and commute and it was hard and and um, her father grew up during the Great Depression. So I still, I grew up super privileged and I still have this scarcity mindset that it could all just disappear at any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also where it comes from is like, I'm not in the same situation as everybody else, but I feel that fear and I empathize with them. 
and it sucks because it's sort of like um you have the most extraordinary life that anyone could ever dream of and you're just uh you have like survivor's guilt every day because you know that people are dying of preventable circumstances because they can't afford food or shelter or medical care um do you think and and my my great-grandfather was a socialist also so it's like my grandfather was like the republican depression baby whose father made him march in the may day parade when all he wanted to do was play basketball so like you know the socialism the jewish socialism thing runs in the family a little bit and then also with the fact that like it's it's a new money thing where it's like oh my god we're so blessed but like none of this was here before my mom you know so it's i wasn't raised by people that were wealthy waspy took anything for granted i think it's still very much that sort of like panic thing right right so yeah so that so the empathy comes from your family and your family's stories yeah, well, I also read a lot of Howard Zinn in high school. If you read a people's history of the United States, it's just totally your whole worldview is just like, oh, God, this place is really fucked up. Um, so highly recommend if you're into history and you want to hear about all the shit that they don't teach you in school, all the racial theory and class theory stuff that they don't want you to know. Definitely read a people's history of the United States. Um recommendations here yeah <laughs> um yeah my own shit is just my own shit is so so but my recs are really on point <laughs> cool i'm gonna wrap this up okay thank you again for doing this my cousin. well thank you so much for having me on it's been a lot of fun to talk yeah same uh i just wanted to make sure i can't read my writing at times here oh I just wanted to, this I'll probably just like cut it out soon but like oh I just wrote how I just like love these lines in your stand-up of like <laughs> I have acute anxiety I guess it, it's not that cute it just made me laugh so much <laughs> oh is that I don't think that's mine it's from the flapper set it's a few years old oh oh shit I didn't even remember that oh my god <laughs> thank you for that is a good one um right um i uh yeah i i'm really like working anxiety into the set because there's no way that i can hide it on stage i, I think anxiety humor is very relatable like the you know some women are capable of having multiple orgasms i'm capable of having multiple panic attacks sort of thing um but yeah do you Shit. Does your anxiety get like, like one thing I'll have to like, not to be so gross, but like, I'll have to go to the bathroom so much before the set. Like, oh yeah. Do you, I like, I always have to pee before I leave the house. It's just like a nervous thing. I just always, if, yeah. If I get anxious, I always have to pee. Um, I get the panic attacks that are like, I'm having a heart attack, <laughs> like yeah. chest pains and physical stuff that it's really annoying because then you go to urgent care and there's like you know they're just like there's nothing wrong with you and then you feel like an asshole for wasting everyone's time um but yeah, yeah anxiety I, I get that way with like i'm a uh just with all the the gun violence and like i will i'll i'll be in a space and get i'll just kind of freeze in fear of someone walking in with a gun like that's mm. the last couple years where 
I'll, I'll just not feel safe in some spaces. Yeah. So overwhelming. Like I'll have to leave. That's so crazy. Cause I feel like that's, you know, that's, that's not even anything that's on you because that's just like American life. And I feel like, um, I, I thought of moving to Canada, um, over the past year because it was like one of those things where I don't think that we realize how traumatized we are by living in this country until you think about not living here anymore. And then it's just like, wow, gun violence isn't even, you know, that it's, it's not the same issue everywhere else that it is here. Cause here it's just out of control. Um, I always like to think that I would be that headstrong idiot who charges at the person, but like, who the fuck knows what you do in a situation like that? And that could be like a really stupid thing to do. Cause it might just make things worse. Oh my God. If you want to hear something, this was one of those things that I almost felt was funny. Cause it was just so ironic was like, you know, the argument that they love to use against gun control sometimes is like, well, what about the, there's good guys with guns that'll come in and fix the situation. There was finally one story about the good guy with the gun who like saved somebody from a bad situation. And then the cops showed up and they shot him. So it's like, yeah, the cops showed up and shot the one good guy with the gun. Um, Sorry, I just thought that was so stupid. There goes that argument, right? Huh? There goes that argument. Like, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, the one, the, yeah. It's, it was also just, it was sort of like, to me, because it's like, that guy must have been a unicorn. You know what I mean? Like, the one time that there actually is the good guy with the gun. Um, or, or it's just like, there yeah, there goes argument. that whole fucking argument. Or just like the, huh? the, oh, I was just going to say the way that if, there for the second amendment it's like yeah but guns are the, that's not the same gun as today's gun just the way yeah you can just shoot you know whatever the you know how quickly these i don't even know what they're called but just these assault rifles and everything and then they're ghost guns and it's just like it's it's so much it's just insane it is so much and also the second amendment was um it was for the, it was, uh, I believe the phrasing in it is well-regulated militia, which is what the cops are supposed to be, right? So it's something that was like a sort of a notion that was established in lieu of a police force, but now we have a police force. So why the fuck, you know, should any person just, you know, have a, like an automatic weapon like that? Um, yeah, it's just, um, it's just silly. And even if you wanted to like keep the guns, it's like, would it kill you to just have some background checks, some mental health so shit, like regulations? Would that fucking kill you? Um, there's a statistic that most, I think it's like 80% of Americans agree about that, about a, a basic background check. I think that like a lot of the divisiveness between political parties is bullshit because a lot of people just normal people agree on most of this shit and it's really just you know a handful of rich assholes in washington who don't want to fucking make it happen because they'll lose money on it somehow um and they have to keep the divides deep you know it's like most people want gun control right. you know even if they like guns it's like you, they wouldn't argue with you know some some regulations you have to take a driver's test before you drive a car um, 
you know, most people want some form of, you know, universal health care. Most people want climate action. Yeah. You know. And those are pretty much the reasons of wanting to go to Canada or some of the reasons. It was it was before it was before Donald Trump lost the election. So I had my baby and I was like, if things got this bad in one term, imagine how much worse they would get in a second consecutive term. So um, I was trying to lay the tracks to and and you learn real quick just um, how much of a weakling you are trying to emigrate to a country where you speak the language, let alone one where you don't, where it's like, oh, shit, this is really hard. Like, I don't think I have it in me to, you know, uproot my whole family and drive across borders and actually get the paperwork together. It's like, yeah, why would Canada want me? You know what I mean? Um, That's the hardest part now is like, yeah, why couldn't you just get a Canadian for this job? Um, How the fuck? Let me in. How do I get in? Uh, Yeah, I was definitely Googling that stuff too before. (laughs) Like my husband didn't even want to have that conversation of the possibility. But Mm -hmm. thank goodness. (laughs) Right. yeah, it's kind of a it's a moot point for now, but it's still nice. It's still a it's still a pipe dream of mine because I would love to just be in a place with um universal healthcare. Um maybe one day. Yeah. New Zealand's looking nice. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of places that look nice. Really? I was just going through the internet seeing where you could stay the longest without being a permanent residence. Um there were a few other places we were considering. I mean, it was just weird times. Weird times we were in panic mode. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hear that so that was a big factor. <laughs> well, I'm <glad laughs> anyway. Um, okay, cool. I'm just gonna wrap this up and then thank you. Um, okay, I think that was cool. Uh, thank you, Molly, for doing the I'm a Rescue podcast. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I feel like I've been partially rescued. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to send you the shirt now. Yes. <laughs> Send me a shirt that says rescue and then people won't try to foster me anymore. <laughs> well, we have that like we do sell them after shows. I'm a rescue. Oh, nice. I was wearing it at Trader Joe's and this person thought I was rescued from being sex trafficked. Like Oh my god. Like yeah, they give you a shirt after. <laughs> <laughs> I was sex trafficked and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>